Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman and I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is July 15th, 2021, and it is my pleasure to have with me today Iyad al-Baghdadi. Iyad is an internationally recognized Arab Spring activist and expert on authoritarianism. He's also the president of Kewakibi Foundation, which is kewakibi.org. Um, the tagline is awesome. The tagline is, our work causes headaches and sleepless nights for tyrants and terrorists. He is also the editor-in-chief of the Arab Tyrant Manual, um, an independent online publishing platform focused on freedom, human rights, and the fight against all forms of authoritarianism globally. Yad comes to us today as a stateless Palestinian, born in Kuwait, raised in the UAE, and now living as a political refugee in Norway. And we're gonna be talking about a lot of things related to that. Uh, you can follow Iyad on Twitter at Iyad underscore El-Baghdadi or check out his website, which includes links to his other work at elbaghdadi.com. And I will say I've been following Iyad and his fearless, indefatigable work fighting against authoritarianism and fighting for freedom and rights uh, pretty much for the past decade, starting with the Arab Spring. Um, and I am honored and really delighted to have him here with me today. So Iyad, Welcome to Occupied Thoughts, and thank you thank for you so joining me today. Um, can you start off by introducing yourselves to our listeners, some of whom may have made the mistake of not following you on Twitter all of this time? Uh, this is always the most difficult question to, to introduce myself. Uh, but uh, briefly, uh, I mean, you gave a good intro. Uh, I was uh, you know, born and raised in the, in the Gulf, uh, in the Arab world. Um, and uh, you know, for the first uh, you know, the first third of my life, um, I was I had a very typical uh, you know upper middle class uh, upbringing in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, my father was a doctor. My father himself, uh, uh, you know, his his uh, his family uh, were expelled from Yaffa uh, in 1948. Uh, he was a baby. Uh, he grew up in Egypt. Uh, my mother's family is also Palestinian, also from Yaffa, but uh, when, you know, after the Nakba, they had left towards uh, Syria, uh, but eventually settled in Kuwait, where she was, you know, she, she, uh, uh, she was raised. Um, and so the family basically, you know, my, my parents got married and, uh, and moved to the United Arab Emirates, uh, and it was a new country at the time, this was 1970s. Um, my initial career was in startups. Uh, I'm a computer programmer by education, but you know, very quickly went into uh, you know starting up startups, starting new things, and I really didn't have much of a political um, bent until 2011 with the with the start of the Arab Spring uprisings, when I felt this enormous uh, sense of responsibility, that uh, almost a personal sense of responsibility, saying that this is it. Uh, we need to make our voices heard. And if we sit this one out, then we won't be able to face our own children later saying that such a historical moment came and went and we just did nothing. Um, and yeah, that's when uh, I believe uh, you must have started following me, uh, Egyptian uprising. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I became influential online very, very soon. Uh, which, which is dangerous if you're living in a country such as the United Arab Emirates, which does not really tolerate any kind of political activism or dissent. In fact, I received my first warning 
um, the day after Mubarak was ousted. Um, and, you know, kind of the message really was don't speak about Bahrain because Bahrain was very close to the UAE and also don't speak about Palestine because we don't want you importing, uh, you know, importing other issues into uh, the Emirati context. Uh, which is, of course, very difficult to do when you're Palestinian yourself. Uh, but yeah, in 20, 2014, um, they kind of had enough with my activism. And this was also a time when the, the global, uh, the kind of the, the balance had shifted, the pendulum had shifted to the other side. And uh, the counter-revolutionary axis, which was basically led by the United Arab Emirates, had the upper hand. And so they felt empowered enough to, uh, to take certain actions. I ended up in prison um, and then expelled from the country. I had to live in an airport for a while because I had literally nowhere to go as a stateless person. Um, and uh, you know, eventually I was invited to, to Norway to speak at the human rights conference. Um, this was in 2014 and I applied for asylum shortly afterwards. Um, and you know, continued my activism here. Um, and of course, I think uh, I was in the news frequently after that because in 2016, um, ISIS put me on a hit list, uh, and that was you know uh, that they, they gave me another warning in 2017. That's when that's my that was my first contact with Norwegian uh, intelligence to, to basically had to tell them that this is something that happened. Uh, but then, in, you know, I, 2017 itself, I started to become closer to the Saudi context, mainly because of um, Hamad bin Salman. And, you know, there's a whole story about that, uh, that, that uh, my, my literary agent is really, really wants me to write. Um, but in 2018, I became close to, um, to Jamal Khashoggi, who, um, you know, there was, he, he was, Kind of transitioning from being someone who was kind of a regime figure to where, to becoming more of an activist figure, even though he did not he did not like the term, but uh, you know he absolutely was doing activism, um, and uh, you know we were talking about certain certain projects, and uh, he was killed um, you know too soon, you know when we're still talking about what uh, what uh, what what projects we can launch. Um, and shortly after that, I received a warning that uh, the Saudis also have their eyes on me. Um, and it was in 2019 that uh, Norwegian intelligence agents basically uh, knocked on my door and, uh, and said that we need to talk to you. And uh, um, they said basically that the CIA gave them, gave them a warning that uh, I was also a target. So I've been under protection in Norway since then. Uh, of course, um, I've, I've, I've managed to um, use the time to write a book and start a foundation. So I think it wasn't too bad. You, you've been enormously productive throughout all of this. I think that's something for people that are not familiar with your work. Throughout all of these travails, um, you never cease speaking out and, and, and working. It's, it's been quite extraordinary to watch and quite humbling, actually. Um, I want to, the reason that I so badly wanted to have you on the podcast right now was to, to really get your thoughts on some things related to the Palestine situation, um, which you do talk about, you do tweet about and write about. And specifically, I want to start off just really zooming in on what's happening on the ground in Palestine today. And I'm curious for your thoughts about the current Palestinian political deadlock 
and the rising grassroots demands for change. And, and this is as someone who's been, you know, you were a key, a key voice during the Arab Spring as we are seeing this in other countries. And what is, what is your view about what is happening and, and what it would mean for there to be a, a new way forward? What would that look like? How could it emerge? Well, I mean, in my perspective, uh, the political deadlock really is a long way coming. I mean, it's, it, uh, we could see it coming. And I think uh, uh, both sides, whether it is uh, the Palestinian Authority or uh, Hamas, um, honestly, I feel like this, this deadlock has been analyzed to death. And I feel like every time I read another thread or another article or another podcast about it, I feel like, why are we still talking about this? We've analyzed this to death. We should move on to solutions. Uh, the way is really the, the two ways uh, and the need for a third way. The way is really were theories of change, visions for the future. Uh, and the two current ways have already reached their conclusion. They've reached their stasis. You know, this is the best that they can come up with. There is no horizon beyond this. There is no vision. Uh, and there is no, I mean, uh, it, it seems that they're kind of, they, they would like to say that they have a solution or a way forward, but they, they obviously don't. When you say the two ways, what do you mean? I mean, the, the, the diplomatic uh, uh, path, which is, of course, embraced by the PA, but also by many world powers, including the, the EU, including the United States, where they keep yammering about it as if there is such a thing as a peace process. Uh, and I think many, many of them really don't understand how hurtful it is to keep talking about something that doesn't really exist. It's almost like, do you think we're stupid? I mean, do you think that... You know, either it's either that you you are uh, you know you don't respect our intelligence, or you actually believe in a, in a fantasy. There is no peace process, and uh, in fact, even within Israel itself, uh, it's not like the majority of Israelis, I believe, according to to to, to polls, do not uh, you know do not support a two state solution. Uh, in fact, I think in the Knesset, it's it's a major it's a minority position as well. So, I mean, of course, this is the one path, which is, uh, which is the PA. And this is why, of course, it's basically, this is the PA's deadlock. Um, on, the, on the other path, which is Hamas, uh, Hamas, of course, is, uh, is kind of uh, uh, stuck where it is in a sense that um, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 had to, it had to survive under... Uh, uh, these, uh, you know, difficult years under, under, under Trump, where it was, of course, uh, threatened with extermination. But then Hamas, I mean, the, the thing about Hamas is they really don't have a vision beyond their own survival as, as a movement. In other words, and this is something which, uh, uh, which I hope, uh, I wish more Palestinians would understand, Hamas is, is, is not acting as a resistance movement, but rather as an Arab regime as another government, which is motivated by self-preservation, which can be populist when it wants to, which can appear to be reasonable or rational when it wants to, but eventually it does not have a vision. It does not have a vision and it doesn't really have a plan beyond its own survival, its own acceptance, which is why we see that, uh, it, this is abundantly clear in its moves uh, during the, 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 the last war, when it was clear that it's trying to align itself with the Iranian axis anticipating some kind of regional bargain, which it might, you know, might benefit it, 
but also you, you saw that it's opening up to to Sisi, for example, opening up to you know to each to the Egyptian regime to different. It, it really it and I, I even went into a certain clubhouse events when uh, you know Khaled Mishal, for example, was uh, was speaking because I wanted to get closer to how they're thinking, uh, and it was clear to me that they wanted to end their isolation. They wanted to leverage their position, this prestige, this resistance, the prestige that comes with resistance. Um, in not only, of course, among the Palestinians, but in the Arab world towards uh, ending their isolation. Uh, but again, for this exact reason, they're not really thinking strategically about the, the struggle itself. They're not thinking strategically about how to re-legitimize themselves. Uh, and they're not really thinking rationally about uh, about the future. I mean, it's they're they're really driven by survival, um, and they can't really they can't really lead. I mean, uh, uh, a partisan movement cannot lead a national struggle, and this is uh, this is abundantly clear. So, this is I mean, for us to talk about the emergence of the third way, since the 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 two ways are really theories of change, resistance, armed resistance versus dip diplomacy. Um, I, I think two things have to happen. There are two tracks. The first is that someone has to present a vision. I mean, someone has to actually present uh, something, a, a strategic vision that works. Um, and in order to do that, we have to look very far into the future because in the, in the short term, there's not gonna be a solution. Uh, this is something we need to, we need to cope with. Um, I, I feel like in many cases, because we're not willing to simply say, this cannot be solved right now, um, we, yeah, we we kind of assume that if it cannot be solved right now, that means it cannot be solved, or it should not be solved, or we should not uh, think far ahead. I've kind of, uh, I mean, my notes are kind of full of notes about a twenty-year plan, and this is, uh, I think, this is something I I, I mentioned to you earlier. Uh, I think that we can win in twenty years. We cannot win in ten years. We cannot win in five years. But if we think in terms of twenty years. Uh, then there's a lot that we can do, and there's a lot that that's actually going in our direction. So let me ask. Uh, but like I said, there's two things that have to happen. The first is someone has to present a vision. The second is that um, someone has to organize a movement. And organizing a movement here, I feel that, uh, and I, you know, I've, I've been involved in many projects to organize movements in other contexts, and like, you know, people consult me in on on the Saudi Saudi context or the Bahraini context or the Egyptian context, etc. And I always feel that. Um, people try to uh, jump over the steps. They want to go directly to political organizing or to starting a political party or something like that. And I think that's a mistake. I think, especially in the in the Palestinian context, which is a fractured context, uh, Palestinians have been separated from each other for a very long time. And this is why the, the, the events um, earlier this year were very inspiring for Palestinians because they we kind of reclaimed an inter-Palestinian uh, an inter-Palestinian uh, or you know a cross-Palestinian um, uh, solidarity uh, which is a, again I mean it was it was a beautiful thing to see but I remember I'm reminded uh, by uh, kind of this is kind of a story when I was in prison in the United Arab Emirates and uh, you know I was uh, they, they had to deport me they had to expel me and I had nowhere to go so I ended up in, in a cell where the people who cannot be expelled anywhere are kept. You know, there are orders to expel them so they cannot be released from prison, but also the, the, there's nowhere to send them to. And at that time, it was all Palestinians and some Syrians. Uh, this was in 2014. 
And I remember sitting there with all of these different Palestinians and noticing something very, very basic, which is that we don't even share the same dialect. So there's the Lebanese Palestinian who speaks Lebanese. There's me, I grew up in, you know, and both, both of my parents are from Yaffa, so I speak, you know, uh, Palestinian Arabic. But there's also the guy who speaks Egyptian uh, Palestinian, you know, Egyptian, with an Egyptian dialect because his family spent more time in Egypt. Uh, and there are those who, who, have, who have a Khaliji, you know, like a Gulf accent because they were, you know, they, they grew up more around, uh, you know, uh, depends where, where they grew up. Um, and I, I realized that this are, we have been atomized. I mean, even the diaspora itself, we say diaspora, but it's actually multiple diasporas. But then, you know, it's, it's, it's a well-known story now because people in the West Bank have their own, you know, the, the, their own reality, their own lived reality. People in Jerusalem, of course, are, are at the intersection of something very ugly. There's the people, the, the Palestinian citizens of Israel. And of course, there's the people in Gaza. Gaza and then there's, uh, there's the multiple diasporas. I mean, we can't really speak of, of just one diaspora. When you force people into uh, parallel lived conditions, they end up having different mentalities, different, different ways of thinking, uh, because you're forcing them to, to contend with different problems. The first thing that we have to do if we have to organize a movement is to reestablish social connections. Uh, I believe the first thing that we need to do is simply get to know each other, get to, you know, get to talking to each other, get to know each other. Uh, I mean, as someone who, who does a lot of uh, social media organizing, I mean, I've been doing this for a decade. I've been you know, in various groups. I feel not enough of this happens, not enough of, of simply texting someone and saying, hey, let's have a conversation. Let's just get to know each other. Even if we don't agree, let's just get to know each other. So I think that's the first thing that we have to do. And then we start to speak about, you know, once this, once you, once you have um, uh, people getting to know each other more, they will, they will naturally start to organize, naturally start to collaborate on things. You know, okay, I'm doing this podcast, for example, would you like to come on the podcast? Or I have this campaign, would you like to, to join the campaign? Um, and then, you know, I think this is this is the basis, and then from there we can kind of create a kind of an association or a congress or something like that, and then we speak about, you know, creating a political movement. So that's the thing. If 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 we have to think this way, we have to think in terms of two to five years, rather than let's do something now. So so let me ask you. Uh, uh, there's so many things I want to dig in more deeply on this. Um, so the first thing I'm thinking, you know, when I think about the you talk about the community Palestinians being atomized. Um, thinking just for the peace process era, it strikes me that that is a feature, not a bug of the peace process era, right? Which reduced the Palestinian issue. Palestinian legitimacy, the legitimacy of Palestinian leadership was based on essentially cutting off all the other diasporas and saying this is just about the West Bank and Gaza and in effect delegitimizing those voices. Um, and it, it's interesting, we are reaching, it seems a point where that as the peace process era ends or is, long, is recognized that it's ended, that that no longer applies. And, and it's kind of, it's exciting seeing seeing what we saw again in, in May with you know, across the green line and across the world. It, it does strike me, and you said that you have different outlooks and different, you know, the, the different contexts because different Palestinians are dealing with different challenges. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how you align that longer term outlook for change for a third way with the reality on the ground for Palestinians living under occupation, right? You have the dual 
the, 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 for those living under, actual, under Palestinian authority, whether or not the green line is still meaningful, regardless, you still have continual, you know, oppression, dispossession, taking of land, demolition of homes, all of that. Um, I wrote something back in the Arab Spring era with Khaled al-Gindi, sort of musing on why you don't have the same Arab Spring that you, in, in Palestine that you had in the rest of the region, looking at the fact that you basically have double authoritarian rules and it's not so easy how to figure out how to challenge either or both simultaneously. So I'd be really but curious also, your thoughts there. No, it's, it's also that, I mean, I, I mean if, you, if you compare it to the people in Gaza, for example, which is under siege and uh, under, under a lot of pressure, it's more difficult to resist Hamas because it kind of feels like betrayal because it feels like, you know, uh, we're already under pressure. We're all under pressure. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a human thing that when, when a community is under pressure, they band together more. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, uh, ironically enough, Jewish people can, can, know, can know this more than anyone else, uh, you know, not given, given their history. Uh, but then the, the thing about the Arab Spring, what made the Arab Spring possible is this idea that all of these dictators for a very long time have said that uh, the West is your enemy or Israel is your enemy or uh, Iran is your enemy or some external factor is your enemy or colonialism or imperialism, et cetera. And all of these are, you know, there's a kernel of, of truth in all of that, but it's not exactly, it's not, doesn't exactly mean that you're my friend. What happened in the Arab Spring is that uh, so many people across the Arab, the Arab region pointed the finger back at their own regimes, by, back at their own dictator and saying, and said, no, you are the enemy. You are the enemy, you are enemy number one. Um, this is more difficult when, like, like, you, like you said, when you have multiple layers of oppression where uh, you don't know where to point the finger. Uh, I feel that this is breaking when, when the, when the, in the case of the PA, mainly because it is dawning on everybody, including the PA themselves, that they don't have a vision and they don't have a future and there's no horizon there. Uh, and so under what, I mean, under what pretext are you ruling us? Under what pretext are you, are you, are you, know, are you beating us up and, and punching us in the face? Uh, under, I mean, under what, what kind of legitimacy do you have anyway, when you, anyway, you control like 18% of the, of the West Bank anyway, and you have no chance of getting beyond that. So, you know, you have your choices either to accept being, uh, you know, being a Bantustan, which is currently what you are, uh, or you have to relinquish uh, legitimacy somehow. The thing is, like you mentioned, um, and I think I have, I have a more nuanced uh, uh, take on the PA itself and its future, because I think any, any sample, any place where Palestinians have self-rule should be preserved. Uh, in other words, any experiment in Palestinian self-rule should, should not be something to be dismantled. Uh, but what's happening with the PA particularly is that they no longer deserve to represent Palestinian legitimacy, and they absolutely do not uh, 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 represent the whole body politic of 13 million, Palestin 13 million Palestinians in the world. Uh, and, you know, the point about the diaspora, of course, is valid. Uh, the diaspora, we're talking about eight to nine million people who are very well resourced, very well educated. Uh, you know, you, you enter, I mean, I, I remember a friend of mine back in the UAE uh, make, making this, this uh, uh, this observation saying that whenever I enter a big company anywhere in the Gulf, somewhere near the top, there's a Palestinian. So this is a highly educated, highly resourced uh, population. And I think it's by design that they need to be sidelined because if you, if you actually engage them, if they're part of the struggle completely, all in, uh, then the balance of power is going to be, is, is going to be different.
And I think we've seen this in, in these events because the, the, war, the, the war of narratives, uh, a lot of the heavy lifting really was done by Palestinian influencers. Sorry, I thought I was muted. I want to come back to you on the war of narratives. That's where we're going to end because I think that's in some ways the most fascinating and, and quickly moving thing. I want to ask you to talk about the interregional element, right? Again, it's a feature, not a bug, that Palestinians in many ways in the West Bank and Gaza are cut off from the region. That's a feature, not a bug, of this political um, framework in which in which they exist. The Arab Spring swept through the region and 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 it, you know inspired across borders. What do you see as the the interregional element on a Palestinian? Um, third way or a change, a shifting of the paradigm. And also speaking to you as someone who has lived in the Gulf, the normalization trends that are now in play between Israel and Gulf states, how, do those figure into it all? Are those countervailing forces that have to be contended with? Or can those potentially actually be somehow constructive or at least not um, negative? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, I would say that these are two different uh, questions. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with the first one. Um, the, the, the Israelis know that even though they stand tall over the Palestinians, you're talking about six and a half million Israeli Jews in, a, in the vicinity of 450 million uh, Arabs. Uh, Palestine is not uh, a 60-40 issue or a 50-50 issue in the, in the Arab world. I think in the latest polls, I think this, there was a poll right before COVID, and I think it was uh, something in the, in the upper 80%, 88% or something of Arabs consider, uh, you know, Palestine to be uh, 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 one of the most important, if not the most important uh, uh, cause for them. Uh, in fact, I mean, I, I think I think in the same year people were asked about the religiosity, like whether they practice religion. I think it, that did not crack eighty-eight uh, percent. So it is not it is not a matter of I mean, it, this is not something which 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 you can say is disputed with among the Arab masses. The Palestinian cause also has tremendous mobilization potential. We've seen this uh, recently, and of course. Because of this reason, because it has this ability to divide, to, to unite, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who, who would otherwise not be united, uh, it attracts, you know, attracts uh, people who would like to manipulate it. Uh, you know, there's every dictator in the region, every populist movement or, or extremist movement in the region has tried to appeal to the Palestinian cause. Uh, but it's not because this, this, this is because it has this power, this innate power. I think a lot of, um, uh, the problem with the current Palestinian leadership is really a lack of uh, uh, a lack of vision, a lack of ambition, not realizing that the Palestinian cause really sits at the intersection of multiple uh, you know systems of oppression. It's not just about uh, what Israel is doing, but it's really about that, that what is as Israel was only allowed to do this for for the longest time because of unconditional Western support, uh, and many people re don't realize that this has actually deeply affected and almost like really demolished the Israeli left. Uh, because, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if the Israeli right wing can get whatever it wants, the Israeli body politic, the, the you know, the, the, the voters do not really have to think very hard because there's no, there's no cost to what they do to the Palestinians. And as a result, the people who would argue, the Israelis that would argue that, you know, we would like to, to, to have peaceful coexistence, we would like to, to have justice, uh, you know, 
they, they're, they're in the minority right now. It's, it's, a, it's a movement in crisis. So when we go, come back to the, to the interregional element, it is very clear to me as a Palestinian, it was, it was clear to me even in 2011, that nothing will happen unless the regional balance of power tips in our favor. This can only happen when this large, uh, you know, intergenerational, interregional uh, transition to democracy is completed. This is not something, of course, uh, these kind of transitions do not happen in a few weeks. I mean, I remember it was July of 2011, I think, that the BBC invited me to attend uh, a panel about the failure of the Arab Spring, July 2011, okay? They were already talking about the failure of the Arab Spring in July of 2011 because they thought that this is something that's, that's supposed to take weeks when it takes a generation. It's something that takes 20, 30 years. Um, I, I recently wrote a book with, uh, with my partner, Ahmad Gtamnash, uh, and we're talking about the Arab Spring as a 30-year process, and we're 10 years into a 30-year process. Um, so this is the, inter the this is the importance of the interregional element, or you know you know you have the pieces there, which is that Palestine has tremendous mobilization potential. It is a very powerful cause because of its moral it has innate moral power, which is both an asset and a liability sometimes. But also there is a, a need, a strategic need, for the region to rise up in order for us to have a solution, an interregional solution here, interregional peace. Um, the second question, your second question was about normalization uh, between uh, certain key Arab regimes, the United Arab Emirates and, uh, and Bahrain. Um, and, you know, of course, Bahrain, basically, it, its foreign policy is uh, almost run from Riyadh. So the fact that they actually would take such a step is, is, uh, must, must have come from Riyadh, from, from the Saudis. Uh, and we've seen that extend to, to Sudan um, and to Morocco. Um, and I, I think I want to talk specifically about the Gulf monarchies because you could see that the uh, the peace, uh, the treaties between them and uh, and and the Israelis are not are different from uh, what happened, for example, with Egypt or with Jordan, because it's a warm peace. It's not a cold peace. Um, the UAE, I mean, I lived in the UAE, uh, you know, for most of my life. I was 37 years old when I was expelled. Um, the UAE is a very small country by, by population, by native population. Uh, it's, it's home to 10 million people, but only a million of them are actually citizens. Uh, it has a very weird political economy because, you know, it's a country where 90% of people of the population, of the permanent population, long-term population, are not even citizens. Um, and uh, the, these demographics are getting worse. Uh, by 2050, I think it's going to be less than 5%. So it's going to be 95% non-citizens to 5% citizens. Uh, even the birth rates uh, among, uh, among citizens are low. Um, this is a country that, for whatever reasons, around 2011 and 2012, decided to take a very aggressive foreign policy. A country of 1 million picked up a fight with Iran, which has 82 million people, Turkey, which also has 82 million people, and tried to influence the internal, uh, internal uh, machinations of the Saudi royal family. Saudi Arabia is a, you know, almost 30 million people. And of course, Egypt, which is 100 million people. When you're a small country in a vicinity of giants, you don't want the giants to get up. The giants must always be broken. And guess who can agree with that? 
the Bahrainis, very tiny country, and also the Israelis. Uh, so there is a certain strategic sense there because if you are that player, I mean, the, the, this is the game to play if you are that player. Uh, and I guess you know the the whole point. Of course, there's there's a whole there's a whole conversation to be had about the the the, the there's a certain aspect of uh, of the Palestinian struggle, which really concerns the minority majority dynamic within the Middle East and North Africa. This is a, a region where multiple peoples have always lived. We have always coexisted, uh, but then we have not coexisted as equals. There's someone had to stand on someone's neck. Um, and really, we have to we have to redefine our, our national movement to be something which is beyond simply uh, talking about decolonizing or liberating Palestine or achieving Palestinian self determination. I think we need to understand that Palestine sits in the intersection of multiple global, um, uh, you know, systems of oppression. Uh, you have the, like I mentioned, the minority majority dynamic, as in who gets. I mean. Is it going to be safe to be a minority in this region? Uh, does the minority always have to appeal to either a foreign uh, uh, power or to a local dictator to keep it safe? Uh, there's also, of course, global white supremacy or Western supremacy, which actually enabled the situation for much for a very long time, because these are the same people who enable Arab dictators, and these are also the same people who have, for very for a very long time, enabled Israeli actions. And then, of course, you have you know the 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 situation in Palestine itself, the apartheid. So th these are the three these are three layers, and I think that we have to understand that if if you have to lead the Palestinian people, you also have to be a leader in, in these in these three things. You have to be you have to be an Arab Spring leader. You have to be a, a, you know a, a, a global uh, social justice leader. You can't only be a Palestinian leader because we don't have the, the luxury to simply focus on Palestine because if Unfortunately, we are in a situation where we need to we need to fix the entire region and the entire world in order to, in order to have dignity. It's not a it's not a uh, it's not an enviable position to be in, but you know sometimes the impossible is inspiring. What you're saying about Palestine sitting at the intersection of these global and historical trends strikes me as um, extremely insightful. I, I, I actually, I'm probably gonna give that as the title for this podcast, it's, it's really powerful. Um, I wanna ask you one more question. We're, we're running out of time. I want you to talk about the war of narratives. Um, and this is a war that you've been directly and powerfully engaged in. I want you to talk about how that figures into the current Palestinian struggle, the move towards a third way, this wave, this, this long-term effort. Um, and, and also what it would look like for to win this. What would it mean for to, to win the war of narratives? Um, so I, I think with, when we talk about narratives, I think many people misunderstand uh, the, the importance and power or misplace uh, the importance or power of narratives. I think um, most political decisions, especially in a, in a post-social media world, political decisions happen within uh, a, a ruling narrative, a mainstream narrative. Uh, sometimes the sometimes I feel like the narrative is almost like the the river, the the the, the direction and, and speed and the flow of the river, uh, and then you know you have to you're forced to actually contend with it, whether or not whatever position whatever direction you want to swim in, you have to contend with the fact that this is this is the narrative, this is the way the winds are blowing right now. Um, so I feel that you know the theory of change that really we we talk about mostly in our team is that you have to win the narrative first and then win the policy. And sometimes if you win the narrative, then the policy is going to take care of itself. 
we've seen that, for example, uh, I mean, the most practical example is really Mohammed um, um, bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman was presented to the region as an alternative. He was to be a model to be replicated across the region. Uh, and this was his, his danger. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's nothing personal against him uh, that I decided to, to commit myself directly to, uh, to the Saudi, uh, the Saudi theater of the Arab Spring. Uh, it just happened that he was being presented as the solution, as someone who's going to, you know, be replicated. There's going to be Mohammed bin Salman's everywhere. So we had to make sure that, uh, you know, that he fails where he is, because it was clear that, uh, you know, um, uh, I mean, maybe we're assisted by the fact that he himself is uh, is not um, you know forgive me to say that but he's an idiot uh, and uh, it's easy it's easy to I mean, it's basically he's someone who made it very clear that he's kind of like almost a cartoon villain uh, so it's it's clear that you know a lot of what he wanted to do cannot really be done anymore uh, but he's going to keep trying because there's nobody there's, there's nobody to to say no to him there's nobody to uh, unfortunately he puts himself he puts himself in a, in a position where he's married into power um but yeah i i mean i i don't want to digress from there but the whole idea here is that he came up with a certain narrative and he was assisted by the way you know uh it's true that the israelis give him uh, uh hacking technology that he used against many people including myself but they also give him uh, I mean, I, I mean, I'm fairly, I'm fairly sure that he's also a client to some Israeli consultants on on the matter of narratives as well. Um, the the point here is that he lost the narrative, and he lost the narrative because you know for for a while he had the narrative. I mean, remember March of 20, 2018 when he came to the United States and he was treated as a as a liberator, as a as a reformer, and he's he was going to change, you know, the the. He, he was going to reform us uh, Arabs because you know we're so savage and, 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 and wicked and backwards. So this is the guy who's going to bring us to the 21st century. And uh, you know, influencers. He met with uh, with Bill Gates. He met with Oprah. He met with uh, you know, uh, um, of course, with Jeff Bezos, etc. He was treated as you know as as a, as a hero. He had the narrative, and then he lost it. And the moment he lost it, you see that the policy is catching up. And you see, for example, that during the democratic primaries, everybody was, you know, kind of competing about who who's going to be tougher towards him. Um, and of course, this is again, this is an ongoing process. But this is what happens when you lose the narrative. When you lose the narrative, eventually, you also lose the policy. Um, and this is the importance of the narrative. Pa power is married into narrative now. You have to win the narrative in order to win the policy. And uh, again, I mean, uh, uh, in the case of um, of Palestine, this is the significance of what happened. This is the really, really big significance of what happened uh, earlier this year. Uh, we absolutely did win the narrative. Uh, our voices were louder and our message was more, was more consistent and it was simpler. It was simply, we, we're not really here to convince people about specific political arrangements or this, this peace plan or that peace plan. We're simply saying we're human beings and as human beings, we deserve human rights. That's it. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to understand much about uh, about the history of the of the region or the history of the conflict or the complexities of this region. All you have to know is that we're human beings and we deserve to be treated with dignity. That's all. And it's a very simple message. Now, uh, where are we going to take this narrative? I mean, what is the future of this narrative? That's another question because that has to. I mean, we have to evolve this towards something bigger. 
because it has to it, it has to be connected to a long-term vision and this is i think where this is where a lot of my 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 time is going right now well i am um, i would love to have you back maybe on a panel um with some other palestinians from other places including from who are living in palestine to to dig into that deeper i think it's really um it's a rich vein and I, I would add the shift in narrative or the shift in language to a rights-based language, which Palestinians have been doing for a long time, but I think belatedly, much of the international community, the pundits have, have, have increasingly adopted themselves is hugely significant. Um, it, it really does shift the way people understand the issue. And as you say, it's much simpler than people, um, than, than some of people would want it to be. Um, we do have to end here. I, I am so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for joining us, Iyad. This has been really fascinating. Um, I want to thank our listeners. Uh, thanks for listening. And don't forget, you can follow Iyad on Twitter at, at Iyad underscore al-Baghdadi or check him out at elbaghdadi.com. And finally, I want to remind everyone, subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the great content we're posting pretty much every week. And you can also listen to it and watch the video from our podcasts on our website at www.fmep.org. And with that, we're going to end it. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off. Thank you, Iyad and Baghdadi. And until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts, thank you all.